Welcome to Highway Diary. I'm your host, Eric Hollerbach. This is episode 380 with Richie Anori. How are you, buddy? I'm fantastic. How are you doing today, Eric? So this Highway Diary, you told me you got a little song called Highway Man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It fits right in, you know. Uh, I mean, it's a full song. I did it for the Canadian truckers, and it's on YouTube. Uh, and uh, But it's... Uh, him calling. Better rise up fast. Rome is burning. I'm a highway man. Feel his fury. Because we know he's right. God's my jury, I'm an outlaw man, living in a nowhere land, we will not submit, it's that kind of thing, goes into the, the next part, so there you go, well, well, uh, what a good theme uh, for the show, um, you know, we met in the green room at Rebels for a Cause in Nashville, well, really, Franklin, Tennessee. And um, I think the best part of the whole thing was the was the green room at Rebels for a Cause was just incredible to be a part of. So. Um, yeah, because really what it was, was what a good networking with Harrison and with uh Matt Baker and with you and of all us, all of us coming together and all the things, the unity that we all have to do to uh, make a better world. You know, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And Harrison Smith and I are collaborating um, at the Vulcan Gas Company. I haven't put it on my website. We're still waiting for the poster, but um, we're well, Klaus Schwab Jr. And, you know, who's very abusive to me. I don't want to talk, get much into him. Um, I'm his intern. I'm Klaus Schwab Jr.'s intern, but uh, there's rumors that at the Vulcan Gas Company, about once a month, they're going to start a show called Illuminati Confirmed, and Klaus's first uh, co-host is going to be Harrison Smith from Infowars, um, and that happened in the green room at Nashville uh, Nashville's event, Rebels for a Cause. So, you know, what a pleasure it was to be a part of that. Wow! Congrats. That's fantastic news. So it's the power of collaboration. I was also talking to Jay Dyer there at Rebels for a Cause. And he, I think we're all on the same trip because Jay was saying that, you know, he's like an academic and a serious researcher and journalist. And he's like, I need to get into comedy because a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Harrison is saying the same thing. I feel like you had a whole music career with the band Sweet, uh, hit song Ballroom Blitz, and that you say that's your day job. But really, what you're all, all about now is activism because we all see that the plans that the controllers have for the United States were going in, down the wrong path, and we can't have the freedom to express ourselves as artists anymore. So, what's the point of all of this if we don't start banding together and pointing our boats at the same enemy? Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point. It's unification. And, and not just about this movement, but going into as a musician, you know, it's funny with with being sweet. <laughs> it's a perfect example of a glam band with that started off with Bowie. I joined the band 15 years ago with Steve Priest. Are you ready, Steve? And he he wanted to put together the after the band broke up in the early 80s, he wanted to put together a real band, what he considered. There was a guy in Europe 
that kind of took over and it, it was a disgrace for him. So when he met me and he heard my drum chops, he said, wow, I want to, I want to put together the real suite, the way I, the way we were before the other fellas in the band passed away. So, but if you look back at Sweet, it was a glam band. I mean, Steve wore like a mini skirt on stage. It was the beginning of, you know, it's really bizarre, but they were, you know, at that time, you know, you could, you could go in weird directions with Bowie and everything and be accepted. So it's funny, my travels, me playing with Brothers Johnson in the, in the black community as well, one of the top funk bands of all times. So I've been able to travel in all different levels in the music business from the glam thing all the way into the, and so lately I've been getting in, very involved in um, the people of color um, community. And I almost look at myself as the unifier. So it's what we're do what we do together and how we all start connecting the dots is what we need to do as a nation. We need to come together, all our movements all together in a grassroots movements and put ourselves at the target and we know who the targets are, <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, I have a side question because, you know, there's a big uh, uproar about Target, you know, doing trainee story time. Budweiser just had Dylan Mulvaney, uh, Dylan Mulvaney, uh, the spokesperson of Bud Light uh, to for part of this trans agenda. I think it's a side shoot of depopulation. If everyone's trans, nobody has children. So that's one method of depopulation. Was was the band Sweet and the hair metal era of the 80s and all the gender bending? Was that part of the trans? Are you part of the trans agenda, Richie? No. <laughs> Not what at was all. with all the glam era and the cross-dressing uh, rock stars? What was with that? 70s. And that's when everybody was experimenting when it was cool. So early 70s was like, okay. So, of course, I joined Sweet, you know, years later. But when they did it, Everybody was experimenting at that time. So this was way before hair metal. This is what started, and that's why there was a poison, why there was a Motley crew. Why, if you hear Axl Rose, he's like, my favorite band was Sweet and Queen. So everybody was, you know, I mean, my thing is everybody do their own thing. Leave the freaking kids alone, man. Leave the kids alone like Roger Waters did in Pink Floyd, you know. But now it's turned into like, you know, it's sad to see how this thing's been so tilted from playing around and putting a little makeup on here and there, how people have just gone, you know, through with uh, very bizarre behavior. But, you know, if you're an adult, do your own thing, you know, but leave the kids alone. <laughs> but yeah. no, I never went there. I'm a, I'm a full blown, you know, uh, male always has been. And yeah, that's, that's just the way I roll, you know. Yeah, well, there was an era in uh, Sweet uh, history where I watched the Ballroom Blitz music video last night, and I was like, whoa, you know, these are a bunch of ladies, pretty ladies on the screen all of a sudden, you know? Yeah. It's <laughs> doing a, a, because Ballroom Blitz was such a major hit. Okay, that's one. We've got Fox in the Run, and really the band went through a lot. Initially, they were asked to dress up. But it didn't take long for the whole band to wear, start wearing jeans and, you know, black coats and the whole thing. So it was kind of like the monkeys sort of uh, version. There was a lot of people behind it uh, initially that launched them and then they rebelled and then they they got rid of all the fancy glammy pants 
and all that stuff. And they, they went and so most of their career, they wore jeans and, you know, did that kind of thing. So it was that, I think it was just pretty much, they were part of this whole kind of a thing at the beginning. So it, it's fascinating. I know I, th- I think of that. And again, they were grown adults and they could do what they wanted. And if you grew up in the seventies, there was a lot of experimenting when you went to see David Bowie, which was the first person to do that. And he gained oh, so much popularity, but you know, it was, it was the sign of the times people were, uh, you know, showing their freedom and so forth. So you can look at it negatively. I understand. I mean, I'm doing right now, I'm doing a version with the top fiddle player. I, in fact, it's already cut a ballroom blitz uh, country style because it's got that train beat, right? So I go, are you ready, cowboys? Are you ready? You know, that's how the song starts. And it is a hoot. And here, Janae Flanor, she's the top fiddle player in Nashville. The best, uh, she won the CMAs three years in a row. And I really identify, now that I'm older, I really identify with with Nashville. And that's hence, and I, I and a lot of the, the, uh, the values and the people. They're very down to earth. I, I just really... I love the people in their heart. And uh, so that's where I'm at. So, yeah. Anyways, there you go. <laughs> yeah. You you live in California now. You say you're moving to Nashville. Well, I'm in California. I, last three years, I've been in New Mexico on the border of Durango and near Farmington. And I lived on a farm out there while the band's been touring. I'll pick up an airplane here and there and go, you know, different places. But it's been, I did in 2020 with my People for a New America is my uh, my nonprofit. I did about eight marches across the United States when the pandemic started. Because I, in 2015, I was on the stage with Bobby Kennedy uh, with my songs, American uh, Fighters. I've been on this mission. In 2015, I launched my rock opera, which is another good example of how art changes culture, like what we're doing with comedy, what you guys are doing. I did a rock opera and my rock opera was based on exactly what's happening in our society now. So they asked me to come out and we protested vaccines at at the CDC with me and uh, Tony Mohammed and Bobby Kennedy. So I've got photos of that and where we played and my songs, American fighters come together with the USA. A lot of these songs I had done, I had, um, the singer that was on the Roger Waters tour, um, Robbie Wyckoff, joined me out there. And so, yeah, I've been on this mission for many, many years as fighting for freedom. And it lines up to exactly what we're doing, brother. Yeah, it's it's amazing what collaboration would do. And um, I got to tell you this, one of my uh, day jobs, it's amazing how pig-headed people are at, at different levels. Because one of my day jobs is I work at a boxing club, uh, Richard Lord's Boxing Club. And um, I'm the Muay Thai coach. If people, quick plug, if people want to take a private lesson uh, in Muay Thai, I'm the guy to go to at Richard Lord's Boxing Club. We have like seven coaches. We have like 120 or 140 members. And um, I was working. We went to Golden Gloves and one of our fighters lost because he didn't understand the clinch position. And so I was working with him about the clinch position um, because he got ahead on the he got behind on the scorecard. And then his his opponent just kept hugging him, hugging him. 
So I went to go work with this kid on just the clinch. That's all. And I'm a Muay Thai player. That's the only position. I'm an expert at this. And when his coach wasn't in the room, he let me do it. When his coach was in the room, he acted like he didn't know me. And I go, okay, what's going on here? And then he's like, oh, no, that's my coach. And it's like, we're in the same club. There's seven coaches in the same club. And some of the coaches are territorial. They're like, oh, don't teach him that. That's going to mess up his whole style. Okay, how about we're in the same club? We're in the same team. I never have this mentality. I feel as though we're going to face different opponents who are going to give the boxers different looks. Wouldn't it be advantageous if all the boxers work with all the coaches to get different looks? My, I feel like we all have a piece of the puzzle. Let's work together. Only only in the last month and a half or six weeks have I started to realize, like, just because I'm an open source coach and I'm like, hey, let me just show you this real quick. That some of the coaches are like, oh, don't talk to my fighter. I'm like, what in the fuck? What in the fuck are you talking about? You're so dumb. Like this, that behavior is dumb. It's not like, oh, there's different ways to work. No, that way is worse and stupid and pigheaded. And we literally had a fighter lose. And I'm trying to show him why he lost. And he would rather lose again than look like he's cheating. It's like, that's not your fucking boyfriend, dude. That's your fucking coach. Let me talk to this fucking guy. You know what I mean? So the power of collaboration, I feel like we became friends in 10 minutes in the green room because we're on the same life path. We're on the same mission, you know? Um, yeah, it's a good... Go on. Good I mean, that's the bottom line. Yeah, we hit it right off and... That was great with Matt Baker, and I really connected with him and with what you guys are doing at the, uh, you know, I'll be in Nashville at the end of July moving there. Uh, and so that's not close, you know, I'm close to Austin, too. So I have a lot to give to the movement because, again, being knowing that my divine download in 89 was at some point in time I was going to bring people together through music and art. And that's what we have to do right now, because if we don't, we, you know, we know the consequences. And um, art has always changed cultures. That's one thing that is the solution at, at, at People for a New America, FANA, we are the solution revolution. If you come up with the right, um, there's a way to skin the cat that most people don't know about. So every time I hear Harrison and I hear Alex and a lot of people saying, oh, you know, we're looking for solutions. I'm going, well, I don't know. I've never really been able to be able to connect with these people. And I'm not going to make a call. I tried to call a few times. And, you know, here, I mean, I play in front of millions of people. You know, I've signed a million autographs. You know, we tour with Journey and everybody you can imagine. And I've done all these things. But how do I connect? And that's why it was so important for me to come to the Cause Fest. Tell me about your download, your spiritual download from 1989. What happened? Well, it's kind of personal, but I was at some hot springs in Victorville, now Apple Valley. And it was a very sacred spot where you hike down deep. And I was with an incredible spiritual group. It was like a destiny kind of thing because everybody was, as I call them, high beamers, very spiritual people. And we went to the springs and... Uh, we went in the springs and we did some oming, um, which that's not always my my thing, but they, you know, they were and we're underwater. And uh 
some very cosmic vibrations happen through the universe. And I was, uh, I had this incredible download and that's what my rock opera is actually about. The only way I could explain the experience was to put that art form because I didn't know how to really be able to communicate it. But it was like, basically the next morning I wrote down everything like a roadmap, what I got from the creator and I wrote it out and it was one vision. And I started writing out all these, even non I knew nothing about nonprofits, all these things. I just started writing out it, like just came through me and it was the roadmap. And so then when I created the FANA site with a lot of great people around me, I used that roadmap how we unify people together. <laughs> so that's, that gives you, yeah, but I'm not going to give you all the details of what happened, but it was, it was a pretty holy night. All I can say. Yeah, it was, it was deep. Um, Well, I want to ask you more about Fana later, but first I want to ask you about um, collaboration. Like I was saying about the boxing club, because um, I met Carol Connors uh, who wrote the Rocky theme song um we did a, a spec pilot together called pets of the rich and famous she's quite a cat lady at the moment she wrote a um the rocky theme song and she described her life as before rocky and after rocky after rocky her life changed completely because she foregoed a lot of upfront payment per for percentage and those checks started hitting her bank account and changed her life forever when you, how many bands were you in collaborating, working on your craft before you were selected by Sweet? And then how, like, did Sweet completely change your life? Well, it's interesting, my story, because my story is, uh, and yeah, Sweet did in a way, but I'll give you a quick synopsis of my career as a musician. I started when I was 11, and by the time I was 16, I had joined question mark and the Mysterians and they had the number one hit in 66 and it was called uh, uh, 96 tears. And that was my first national act that I played with. And from 96 tears, I uh, started playing a lot of jazz because I was in the, you know, as a school drummer and whole thing, I learned buddy rich stuff. And so I kept on moving with my career and I joined, I, I was in a band, a very big progressive band here in LA and it was called Satyr, S-A-T-Y-R. And we were bigger than Van Halen. So we hung out, Randy Rhodes and all these guys. So from there, after that band broke up, should have been like the biggest band in the world. But that opened a lot of doors for me. And I kept on going. And instead of being in like joint, which I had an opportunity to join, join Quiet Riot and all these bands, Spirit led me in a way where I was able to play play with everybody. I got Rick Derringer, um, you know, Ronnie James Dio, all Larry Carlton, uh, all the funk players. I've been able to play with a wide variety right before Sweet, and I could go on and on. Richie Sambora I worked with and all these guys. So right before Sweet, I, um, I was playing with Toto, uh, singer Bobby Kimball. So he'd go out formally of Toto, Bobby Kimball, and I toured a lot with him. So we did all the, you know, Africa and all the big hits and we played big, you know, 10,000 seaters and, you know, all over the place. So then um, I joined Keith Emerson from Emerson, Lincoln Palmer. I was in a band with him, which was another like total. And because of my progressive background, 
playing with him, he loved me. He thought I was one of the best drummers he ever played with. And that said a lot. And then right before we started blowing up with it, they were called Aliens of, Aliens of Extraordinary Ability was the name of our band. He got back, he made up with Greg Lake and they went on tour and then I moved on. And so everything led up to Sweet. So when I was asked to join Sweet by Steve Priest, he made me an equal partner. And so when we started touring in 2007, it was beautiful because we were playing with Boston, Journey, every major act in the world. We went to South America, you know, all over a lot of shows in Canada. So it was a, it was a life changing event. Yes. Yeah. It, a career. It was like it went from here to here because of the touring and, you know, doing big radio shows. And it's been it's been a nice ride. <laughs> But I think like you, you have to be a true believer in your craft for a shot. I mean, people like I was at uh, Vulcan the other day and people were like, hey, can I get on your show? It's not even made yet. And I'm like, how long have you done comedy? And they're like 18 months. I go, I, I've been doing this for 21 years. Get back to me when you've been doing it for 10. Like, you know, it's just like people, everyone thinks that there's like a shortcut. There just isn't. I mean, you know, perf like the level at which you play is because you made a, a, a choice long ago that this is what you were going to fucking do. Yeah. I mean, some people come into it and they're in it for 10 years and they, you know, you never know. I mean, for me, my mom was a stage mom. So she got me into dance at a very young age. And then when I started hitting pots and pans, they go, we better get this kid a practice pad. And then, my brother's band. So at 11, I already was groomed for being an entertainer. Unfortunately, once I started having a family and my group Satter broke up and I was doing session work and the drum machine came in, I was like, oh God, I got to make money other ways. So that's when I became an entrepreneur and I started doing, and I did, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of business being a uh, businessman at the same time while touring. And then owning a big studio. So, you know, when you're in it for good, you're in it. I knew I was all in and I would never stop. And mostly when I had my download, it was like, okay. And then I knew, well, wait, I, I've been like picked to do something in the world on a mission and a purpose. How can I do that through drums? And then I realized I had to become a singer songwriter and be able to write songs to be able to communicate my messages. So and then be good enough and play like Kendricks, because that's my style I have. And then learn how to sing and do all these things, because if you listen to what you're what you're meant to do and you stick to that and you listen. To in a spiritual sense, it, it, it guides us and it, it gives us that that knowingness that this is what we have to do to help mankind. And that's what we're all doing. We need to collaborate. Yes. I'll tell you a story. Um, I When I first moved to Austin, Texas from Jersey, I went to uh, this Super Bowl party and I was hanging out with a bunch of comics. I we I, Someone made me laugh. I go, ha, 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 that's really funny. I leaned on the deck. The deck snaps. I fell on my head. I got knocked out. Horrible. The next morning, I, I started going, I could have fucking died. I could have landed on my neck and broke my neck and been paralyzed. 
I, and I started like thinking about all my life choices and how to make my life better. And then, um, you know, that's when Klaus Schwab Jr.'s uh, UFO landed on my apartment. And, you know, I was playing on at the Romo room and uh, Tripoli was was um, like the Romo room in the domain at the time was my home club. And when I saw Tripoli was going to play there, you know, Klaus Schwab Jr. was born and walked in the green room. And my life has been different ever since. Um, so um, but he's very abusive. And like when he's around, my mental health goes out the window. But I don't want to talk too much about that. Um, but, you know, you. Uh, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. yeah, it's very, you know, I, you know, I wake up, there's dead animals in my in my bed. And he's just like, that's how I know he's going to come in like a couple of days, you know, so he just like leaves me like like serial killer type messages, you know. Um, almost like something, you know. Say that again. It's almost like a bad Santa Claus, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like the Hitler version of Santa. Um, you're. <coughs> I don't know if I can, if you want to talk about this, but you you've had a, a near death experience too, and um, you were describing this scenario where you were in with some rough characters. You know, can can, can you tell this story? Well, I had a couple of life changing for me, and that's what makes my life such an interesting thing is that if you can overcome things like that I did, and I, I believe that getting in the depths into growing up in LA in the San Fernando Valley and living in Hollywood, I didn't really see, you know, I didn't see, I mean, it, things got seedy, very seedy, but you don't know it when you're in it. And you don't, you can't no light until you're part of the dark and when you're actually actually safe from that and your life turns around from very very important things that can change your life and i realized that even though with the story i'm getting ready to tell you i still was stubborn enough to stay because see it was all about drugs growing up in the uh, 60s 70s and 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 80s i mean it was and 90s i mean it was a lot about in, you know, everybody was experimenting. It was marijuana into cocaine, never heroin. But it was about party, 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 rock and roll, sex, drugs and rock and roll. So I was at the wrong place at the wrong time in 1977. And it was during the Hillside Strangler. Um, and if you look it up, because a lot of you guys weren't around at that time, but it was a uh, it was a. Uh, it was two characters that were killing. They were uh, serial killers, the Hellside Stranglers. And their day job was ripping off drug dealers. Well, I was at this drug dealer's house at the wrong time. I had an ounce of pot, a Hawaiian pot that I was showing them that my friend from now, at those times, it was unheard of. It was in like a vacuum packed thing. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I brought it over for him to look at it, but he was like big time Coke dealer. And, uh, that's when these guys came up the steps and they uh, they came up the steps and they were posing as cops, homicide. They were in plain clothes. Well, come to find out that was what they, how they lured the women in by being homicide cops. They'd pull over regular girls. They put a little light on their car, pull them over, plant drugs in their car and say, oh, what's this? And they take them and they go and kill them. And they killed 30 girls. So I had the hillside strangler that broke into the house. I won't give you all the, the details, 
but they came in with guns and they handcuffed me and put me to the, all three of us. And while I was praying, pre, you know, basically I was pleading for my life because the one guy had a gun to my head while little John was in the other room uh, arguing over the drugs and the money. And I begged for my life from him. And he says, shut up, lay down. That was, you know, it was Bono and uh, Bianca. They, that was them. We found out later through court testimony, this whole thing happened. So uh, luckily, as I was doing that, I was saying goodbye to my parents. And I knew the gun was going to go off anytime in the other room. It was traumatic for me. But was it enough for me to stop? No, I kept my ways. I kept on going. I wrote a, I wrote a, a, I wrote a song called uh, 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 Running Down the Devil's Road. If you want me to play a couple bars for you, I could. Okay, go for it. When I was a young man, gamble with my life, running with the devil every single day and night, and I got lonely. Running down the devil's road. Driving down that highway, I got a trunk full of dope. Heading on over to Gina's house, you know, man, sales are cold. gonna get high. High. Running down the devil's road. And we're gonna get low, 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 lower than a one eyed toe. That's low. I wanna tell you about it. Send the beat to buy. Play the devil's game and you might end up dead. <laughs> There's a couple more. <laughs> so what did that teach you? So so it didn't you didn't stop running uh, that your lifestyle at the time, but um it you know, any near-death experience kind of snaps you into into like, oh well, maybe this behavior is not the best behavior. How how did that eventually form your story? I a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a technician in the rocket industry, so that, they didn't make a lot of money. So it was either wash dishes at a convalescent hospital or work at Toys R Us. Those were my or pay for my drumsticks after Saturday didn't really make it all the way that we wanted to. You know, it was like, what are you going to do? So everybody in our group were like peddling small amounts of drugs. So, but I got myself into that thing and I'm in this band and it's going to keep, it's ready to make it. And so that was my choices. And here I, you know, I play, I practice drums eight hours a day, you know, to be that, you know, that's how much I was into my craft, you know? So it was just kind of the way of the, of those six, you know, late 60s, 70s kind of thing. It was really the seventies. Yeah. Eighties. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, yeah, you justify it. Let's face it. There are things that you shouldn't do, but you justify it. Well, you did say something interesting there that I kind of agree with. Like in order to see the light, you have to go through the darkness. In order to put people in a positive direction, you have to experience the negative. Was that it? Was it just like, well, my life could have taken this path. I could have gone down the road and died. Or now that I've given a second chance at life, I wasn't murdered that day. What what is the fucking point of my life? What is my higher purpose? Yeah, I mean, for me, I was like, okay, uh, that happened. But my thing is, I'm a musician, and you know, in those days, well, all the musicians do drugs. Oh, everybody, you know, it's the whole thing that okay, everybody does it. 
So you you take on that thing and it's your lifestyle. Plus you're you're getting high, you know, you're still doing blow, you're still doing so your mind is altered with what you're doing. So and you're still moving ahead in life to where the second biggest event happened in my life, which I could share with you. Go on. So um, and this is all in my autobiography and that I continue to write because there's a lot of story that is incredibly ready to that I will come out with this at the time. But being involved in that serial killer thing, one of the biggest, you know, 30 girls dead. And then all of a sudden being in the music industry, looking for that magical uh, um, investor. So, you know, everybody's looking for money. So we got this guy named Morgan Morgan Hedrick involved in our band. We by that time we were eyes, and we had the singer from Mata Hoople that joined our band. Uh, and so we had a great shot. We we're going to be now we're like from progressive rock. We're getting ready to be like the next Duran Duran kind of thing, you know. And uh, so his name was Nigel Benjamin, the singer, and we were great. And so I was in Hawaii playing in Hawaii. I, I met a Navy SEAL named Steve Arrington. And uh, we hung out in Hawaii. We pl we played over in Hawaii for like three months. And so he ended up moving back when I came back to L.A. And he introduced me to a guy named Morgan Hetrick. Well, he he invented the anti-skid device for airlines. So all of a sudden he says, hey, Morgan really likes you. He wants to he wants to back the band. So we took the money. We started doing it. And. Uh, Long story short, because there's a very long story to it. Uh, he was the biggest coke smuggler. <laughs> he had a he had a um, he had a whole air force in Mojave of these all these planes, and we didn't know it. I didn't know it at the time until one night I was driving to Hollywood, and he told me I could I score him sixty keys of coke, and I was like, what? And it blew my mind because he he told us like, hey. You know, what you, uh, you know, I don't want you guys doing drugs at the studio. I'm paying for this. You know, he was, he looked like the straightest, like businessman, right? But come to find out, it came in later testimony that he was actually um, the biggest West Coast drug supplier on the West Coast. Uh, and he flew it in because he started off with Lear flying parrots across and he realized he could make money, more money bringing in Coke. Because parrots were Ill illegal, right? So long now, long story. This is going to be uh, the the capper is that he's the one. If you look at Netflix or any about the DeLorean, he's the he he's the supplier for the DeLorean case. If you know anything about John DeLorean, mm. so I have in the DeLorean case, and I was taped. My phone records were subpoenaed. I had a, the I had the head of the DEA basically call me, John. Uh, Oh my God. It was just unbelievable. It, it turned my life. It broke up the band. Everything. <laughs> and, and it was like, uh, you know, ended up to, to you know, ended up uh, with a divorce in it, you know, everything. So my life uh, definitely crumbled. It wasn't till, and that was 81. When I got out of drugs fully was 1992. And I haven't touched a drug since. And so it's been like 30 years of no drugs. Uh, and um, but again, you know, you're hard headed. You're in you're in this. And uh, but those are two remarkable things. And that story has a lot more to it. Believe me. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, uh, it sounds like a classic Hollywood story. The guy was using a rock band to launder Coke money. What what an American story. Um, Exactly. So you had your spiritual download in 1989, and three years later, it took even after a spiritual divine download, it took you three years to get off the drugs. I by that time there was coke involved. It was a little bit of pot. You oh, know, okay. Weed. I mean, I mean, I was already done. Believe me. I mean, it was like forget it. And I wasn't a, like a drug addict at that time. I was always able to get drugs out of my system. And I, I would stop even smoking pot for six months at a time because I found for me, it would get me into a rut. And so for me to progress to where I wanted to with my career, I just didn't want to have any fog in my mind at all for me, you know. Well, I uh, I smoke a little pot. I drink a little beer. So, uh, you know, nobody's perfect. But um, look, uh, but yeah, I've done cocaine. I don't know three, four times in my life. I've done ecstasy once. And nowadays I am, I, anyone who I find out is in my circle is on drugs. I go, you're a loser. Get away. Stop talking to me. So that's, I'm so, because I've done it. I'm like the, the few times I've done cocaine the next day, I'm like, all I can think is I want cocaine. I want cocaine. I want cocaine. I want cocaine that all day. And then half of the next day as well. What's the point of that? So people that succumb to that, I feel are led by their whims. I am led by my will. If you're led by your whims, you're a slave to your whims. If you're led by your will, you're led by your higher purpose. Um, in my opinion, the blues messenger, the bluesmessenger.com. I was looking at this. Uh, you put out an album. We rise to a new freedom with singles up in arms, the blues messenger. The the headlining uh, single from that album, uh, "Power to the People." This is this is your calling. What is the bluesmessenger.com? What is this? I'm in the process of revamping the Blues Messenger site, but it's fine what I have up there right now. But Blues Messenger is these songs since I had my download to write songs about you know, like power to the people, united we stand. I wrote that in the 90s, united we stand, divided we fall, together we win, time to answer the call. Here is the simple truth I dare you to see. We got to come together if we're going to stay free. And then dark forces surround us. You know, it's all about the power elite. It's all about, you know, uh, uh, the, the every lyric that I write with these songs that I wrote. And my producer was going, why are you writing all these songs? They seem so... I go, I have to. So I'm writing this stuff in, in the name of freedom in the 90s, 2000, early 2000s. Just like when InfoWars started getting pulled pull together, I was on this mission writing all these songs. And so it never was the right time. I try to organize people like Moment of Truth before this nightmare happened that we're encompassing, trying to wake up the people. So the Blues Messenger is about waking the people up with a vibration of music. See, that's my way. And that was my divine download is that music is a just like comedy. You know, if you take life too serious, it's about the spirit of play. You know, we've got to lighten people up. But at the same time, we've got to communicate through every vibrational level. So my job is the blues messenger. And when we're called upon, you're always waiting that you're going to be because I knew that I had to become a somebody 
to have that voice, to be that celebrity, to be in famous bands, to go through what I want for to set up the next phase of what I believe. But you don't know what it's going to come. You don't know when you're going to be that voice. And so I've, I've, my songs, you know, I, I keep on wanting, but with streaming and all these things that you've got and, you know, CDs are out now and this and that, it's kind of me kind of going through it and connecting with you. And, and this is all part of how we start getting the word out, um, the messages that I've, I've done and the videos that I've done. I put, you know, I put a lot of the money for my businesses now that I don't and I'm just an artist. I put it into these songs, into productions. I got guys from the Eagles, uh, horn section. I've got guys from Pink Floyd. I've got the best musicians backing me up on these tracks. And they're this. it's it's not like some of these demos or what they do today on GarageBand. These are fully produced songs that are in the can. And We Rise is just one example. They're like seven songs come together with the U.S., so that gives you an idea of what my aspirations are is to get the message and get the stuff out there. And it's, uh, you know, you just got to put it out there. And then, uh, you know, I think it's all, div I always say divine timing. <laughs> um, and then you have your other thing, uh, pfanusa.org. Um, it's charities of real estate. Um, it's a 501c3 charitable organization and it's all centered around charities of real estate. How does that work? What is pfanusa.org? We call it FANA, People for a New America, okay? So this was part of the download to have an organization. And so nonprofits, a lot of people don't realize that nonprofits are the less looked at by anybody. And I brought in Sherry Watson who was the key architect of America's with disability movement. And she was the, one of the key architects that changed 55 million people's lives. And the disability community, uh, community was the most attacked community than anybody. They were forced to stay in their beds of pee at their, at the nursing homes. They had no voice and they came together with no internet and changed the world. And how they did it, they outmaneuvered the power elite, the ones that owned all that, that just were using them and using that money. They, We profess here at People for a New America, FANA, we profess um, we are the government. It's our money. She be, She's a grant writer and grant, grant reviewer, and she's the president of FANA, okay, along with our master's inner circle, which is a mastermind. So see, it's a combination of what I've got music with the Blues Messenger and the other component is people for a new America. So, you know, you can do your music, but if you don't have the doing this and the action of building a grassroots movement, so that was part of that, like I said, that's what FAN is about. Now, where charitable giving to real estate is a beautiful way to build your endowment, as we say. Some people say war chest. But how are we going to do that? Okay. Well, charitable giving a real estate has done, we have a guy named Chase Magnuson who basically worked with George Washington University. And he wrote the book on charitable giving a real estate. So a lot of people might have vacation property that they don't use. They get taxed every year. 
or you've got the you know uh, cap gains and all these various things, or they want to let. So a lot of nonprofits, they really they don't take property like cars for kids. So what Fannie has positioned ourselves in is we're that hub of bringing in charitable giving to real estate. We just had our first Sherry with Power of Purpose, her last company brought in $40 million worth of charitable giving to real estate. Chase has done a billion dollars worth of business in charitable giving to real estate, but it's ready to blow up because it's just a great, if you look at commercial property, it's a perfect example. A lot are going under the water. And how we can use that for, for homes, for the homeless, instead of putting them in, the, in these little tiny homes where they just end up turning into little drug habitats, you know, how we can turn around society. So that's why we call people for a new America. It's, you know, people for, you know, charitable giving is just one small sliver. We are developing uh, Fanta University, how people can start nonprofits. And what Sherry did with the ADA is 800 nonprofits came together and that's how they changed the world. Collaboration again, see? So the answers are there. And so now it's just making everybody aware that there's this pathway of all these various ways to, you know, start changing and building up our endowment <laughs> and keeping legacy alive. You know, a lot of people, they want to leave a legacy. They've got this property. They did a $9 million ranch. This guy had everybody in the family was fighting over the property. So what he did is he broke up annuities. So everybody got it. It's almost like a trust, but it's way cooler. So a lot of people don't know about it. And that's why at Phantom, we have the master's inner circle and that we're right on the process of having people just come together. And we've been at this for a few years. Like I said, I started off with the marches. I was marching everywhere. My idea was to do million man marches. So this has been, I know it's all perfect timing. So, yeah. I don't know. Collaboration's bullshit. I think we should fight like a bunch of jealous losers over stuff and uh, go bankrupt. Pay, give the lawyers everything while we fight with each other. Um. <laughs> oh my God. I, uh, my family, like, my on my dad's side when my grandpa died his brother's sister tried to take the house and they haven't talked ever since where it's like no 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 we're gonna split this and they're like well we live here it's ours and they're and we're our side of the family's like yeah you're a mooch and a thief we're gonna break this up anyway it's just like nothing a will uh brings out the worst in people where it's like that's mine it's like do you work that's mine you know what i mean so same thing same thing. It turned into a, a, you know, going to court like that. And that's why charitable giving to real estate. And you can go on the site, People for a New America USA. It's it's uh, PFANUSA.org. And you can start studying what it's all about. If somebody has a property, all they do is fill out a form to see if there's enough equity in the house to start the ball rolling. And then what we do at FANA is we turn them over to Chase and Chase carves the deal. So we just had three pieces of property in Arizona uh, donated to FANA. Well, you can donate to FANA or you can, any other charitable organization, but we are, we're the facilitator of the deal, you know, and uh, it's just really a beautiful way to stop the bickering or just like I said, cap gains tax or IRS taxes. There's a lot of things in it. You know, a lot of people have, you know, they have, they have even land 
vacation homes. It, it goes across the board. Solutions. Um, well, that's I'm out of questions, Richie. I, I guess we could uh, wrap up uh, soon. I just want to really thank you. Um, you know, look, like I said, it hasn't always been uh, easy for Uncle Eric on, on my comedy journey, uh, you know, going at this for 21 years. Um, but you gave me such a compliment in the green room. I'm getting emotional. Uh, but thank you. Uh you you know you saw what I was doing immediately and you were super you were like hey man I don't know if you know this but you're about to go you're about to explode what you're doing and uh I've known that for years I've been in my head I've been the funniest person in the world for since I was 31 or 32 now I'm 37 and I'm like man if if the vision I have in my head is uh validated by any you know what I mean when it's validated I'm like yes thank you I've been I don't you 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 have to be delusional as an artist to have a seat at the fucking table delusion is but it when talent meets delusion it becomes reality so uh yeah you've paid your dues you told me your history what you've been doing you know what you did getting involved in it's like me even though I was through this whole drug thing, I was at the right place at the right time. And looking, and when I was going through it, I never thought I was at the right place at the right time, right? Because you never do. Because, you know, now I look back and went, oh my God, I was right in the middle of, you know, Eddie Van Halen was our, and Randy Rhodes. And <laughs> I was smack dab in the middle, but it was never enough. But when you look back and you get older with your wisdom, you go, wow. You know, when you, you turn, you know, 70 and 75, you'll sit back and go, oh, my God, that was just unbelievable how that all worked. Because you had a postulate. You manifested it. See? And you focused on your career. And you got in with, you know, production. You kept on going because you believed that someday. And then you turned into this freaking funny man. And when you did that, when you said that with the Klaus you know, I mean, that was it for me, man. I was like, oh, my God, you were right, brother. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, go to ericollerbach.com. I got some uh, uh, Illuminati confirmed is going to populate there next week, probably on Wednesday, the 28th. Uh, depends on when I can get that on Vulcan Gas Company's website, but that's imminently happening. Um, we got visit thebluesmessenger.com, pfan pfanausa.org. Thanks to my guests. This has been Highway Diary, episode 380 with Richie and Ori. Thanks, brother. Thank you.